All right, good morning, gang. This morning we're going to be in Exodus 19 and 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Got ambitious, we're going to do two chapters today. Exodus 19 and 20. Um, Last week we left off with Moses and the Israelites um, and got some good advice from his father-in-law, you know. Father-in-law wasn't sure. He was the priest of Midian, but had he was he worshipped many gods. And it wasn't until he heard and saw what was going on with Israel that he realized this is the one and true living God. And so he changed to a monotheistic God. And now, after that, after that beautiful acceptance, he's able to give some good advice. Um, and he does. He tells them, you know, Moses, you've been waiting uh, in line and causing people to wait in line to answer all of their questions, and you're not you're not able to do all that. You can't do it by yourself. You need some help. And so he gave them some wisdom as to who to pick and what they should be doing. And so that's where we left off. Now they've moved now. They're moving to Mount Sinai. They're coming to the mountain of God where God gives them the Ten Commandments. And that's what 19 and 20 are about. So in verse 1, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of, of, uh, it, of uh, sorry, um, the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses is acting in the place of a priest, which a priest is very simple. You you come to God on behalf of the people, and and you come to the people on behalf of God. You were the, the mediator. Now, there's one mediator between... God and man, that's Christ Jesus, and he's our chief and high priest. Um, But God wants to show an example here. Israel, I didn't just come to save you. I came to use you to save the world. I want the whole world to know who I am. And so you're not only going to be, you know, have a relationship with me, but you're going to be the ambassadors. You're going to be my representatives to this world. You're going to be my priests. I want a kingdom of priests. And so Moses then would hear that and then tell the people, this is what God said. Now they saw things going on. We're going to describe this in a minute, or God will, they see the lightning and the thunder and all these things. They know something's happening, but they can't understand it. They can't discern the voice of God. And so uh, Moses will come down and say, here's what he said, sort of a translator in a way. And God said, this is what I want you to tell the people. Now remember, this is all for a picture um, of what Christ will do for us. We go to Christ. We don't necessarily have to know the Father. We do but Jesus is the expressed image of the Father. So he comes and, as God come in the flesh, tells us and speaks to us and teaches. and um, His Holy Spirit dwells in us and so on. And um, this is that picture of that. So he comes down on behalf of God to the people and ministers like a priest would, even though the priesthood hasn't really been established yet. And so he does this. Now he gives a kind of a, an interesting thing. It's like, it's like eagle's wings. I picked you up on eagle's wings. And... Um, 
in Deuteronomy 32.11, he elaborates on that a little bit more. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll give you the synopsis. But he describes it as, as an eaglet or, who's in the nest, comfortable, not ready to fly yet, um, but needs to start stretching and maybe exercising. The mother will hover over the nest and kind of disturb it and cause some action to take place there. And these eaglets would come tumbling out of the nest, scared. They don't know what mom's doing. They don't understand what's happening. And they go falling and crashing towards the rocks. And the mom lets them flutter a little bit. But she comes in underneath them and swoops under and actually will catch them on her back and fly them back up to the nest. And she'll do this repeatedly, just kind of stretching and getting their wings ready for some actual flight until finally they don't struggle and they actually fly away. And that's in... Deuteronomy 32.11, that he elaborates on this and gives us that insight. So that's what he's talking about here. With the nation of Israel, they've certainly been disturbed, haven't they? You know, they were not happy in the nest of Egypt. They weren't comfortable there, and God has got them out, and he's carrying them up and swooping them up, and he does the same thing for us. He's teaching us how to fly. He's teaching us how to use our wings. He's teaching us how to stretch spiritually. And so sometimes he'll disturb our lives. We don't like it. We don't understand why. What's this happening? Why is this going on? Why do bad things happen to good people? You know, and, and we'll flutter and we'll stumble and we'll flap all the way down and think we're going to die on the rocks. And he swoops us up and picks us up and brings us back. And that will happen periodically throughout our lives. And, of course, the lesson for us is to not be worried about the disturbance, knowing that we placed ourselves in God's hands. He's always looked out for our best interest. He's always taken care of us to trust him. This is for our benefit. This is for us to grow. This is for us to learn how to fly. And so he does that. He says, I've done this for you, and I want you to, to accept it and be, be excited about what's about to take place as we travel to the promised land. Verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded them. Then all the people answered together and said, so Moses relays it, and here's their response to God, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. I don't know where the emphasis was on that, because here's what happens. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in, a th- in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. He says, I know what they said, but I'm going to come in a real powerful way, so that when they see me talking to you, they'll always believe you when, I, when you tell them what I've told, you know, they're never going to think that you made it up. And so I'm going to come in a powerful way. It's possible the emphasis when they responded was, all that the Lord has spoken to us we will do. Inferring that, yeah, but whatever you say, we're not so sure about. So as long as it's the Lord that's speaking, that's fine. But as far as what you say, I'm not so sure about that. And so God says, okay, well, I heard what they said. I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. I want them to trust you. I want them to trust you. See, when Jesus came as our high priest, as God come in the flesh, not everybody believed what he had to say. In fact, most didn't. He was alone at the cross. And so God, even though he demonstrated that this was my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and showed that to them, and everybody heard the voice and understood that when he got baptized, whoa, you know, they still didn't necessarily buy into everything he had to say. And so God's adamant about this. I want to use you, Moses, and I want them to believe you, and so I'm going to make sure that they have no excuse. I'm going to speak to you in a powerful way. They're not going to understand it, but they'll at least know there's a conversation going on so that when you speak 
all the time, whenever you say, God says for me to tell you this, they'll believe you. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Here's what they said. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Consecrate means set apart. I want you to get them set apart today and tomorrow. Get prepared. And let them wash their clothes. That's, of course, symbolic of washing their hearts to get prepared before they come meet the Lord. And let them be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. That's pretty extreme. Tomorrow, or two days from now, I want you guys to get prepared, get ready, but I want you to set up barriers around the mountain because I'm going to show up, and only you can come up here, but I want them to draw near to me, but they can't draw too near lest they die. That's the idea. And here's how I want you to do it. This is God's idea. I don't want you to grab them. I don't want you to do anything physically to them. I want you to do it from a distance. In other words, you're going to throw rocks at them and you're going to shoot arrows at them and keep them from coming up there. A lot of people don't understand this. Most of the world doesn't understand this. And hopefully as Christians, we understand this. To come into the presence of a holy God without any atonement, without any forgiveness of sins, without being washed by the blood of Christ, it's like a moth to a flame. It's not the flame's fault. It's the moth's fault for being consumable. And so he knows that. I'm a holy God. I'm allowing Moses to come near. But if anybody else tries to come near, they can't. And there's a picture here for them. We can't, although we want to draw near to God, although we all want to go to heaven, although we'd love to spend forever with God, you can't until certain things are taken care of. Because I'm holy and because you're not holy, death waits for you. That's what he says. The wages of sin is death. And so there's a picture here for them to remember. We can only go so close. But who we are prevents us from drawing all the way to the top of the mountain. We can't get there on our own, not unless he gives us permission, not unless he makes a way. And so I want you to do this, Moses. I want you to get this barrier set up and make sure that they know they've got to set themselves apart. They can draw near, but they can only come so close. So when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. I do want to draw them near. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. That's interesting. There's lots of, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But the idea here is that's that's consecrating yourself. It's that big of a deal. That's how important our wives are to us. This is so big a deal that I don't even want you to come near your wives for the next three days. And you know what that means, obviously, physically. And so lest we get the idea that women are second or wives are half or really not that important or women are whatever it is that we can come up with sometimes, God includes this saying, no, it's so important that I want you to stay away from your wives for three days. For, For some reason, that's the exclamation point on everything he said. Really? You know, it's that big of a deal. It's that big of a deal. I want you to, I want you to be focused on me over the next three days, not your wives, not each other. Verse 16, then it came to pass in the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Quite a sight. Some say it was a, a volcano, but it's not. It's solid granite. The Mount Sinai is solid granite. It isn't even volcanic at all. This is all the Lord. It's funny how many people try to come up with these physical reasons or these, you know, uh, there's got to be a reason for this. Yeah, it's, it's, God's just that awesome. He's just that big. He's just that powerful. There doesn't have to be, uh, you know, anything other than that. Isn't that okay? Isn't that acceptable? So he comes down this mountain, and Moses walks up into it, and he's the only one. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to, the, to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, why does he single those guys out? Why does he single out the, the priests? Why do they have to consecrate themselves? I thought he already said the whole crowd was supposed to consecrate themselves. The whole nation of Israel is. Because priests sometimes think they're above it. We've got to be careful about that. You know? Even as I'm studying this for today, I have to remember, although I'm a priest in the sense of Revelation chapter 1, all of us are priests and kings as believers in Christ. Just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I don't consecrate myself before I come and open God's word and pray and speak to you and pray with you. You've got to consecrate yourself and set yourself apart. There's no clause or no loophole for anybody in the body of Christ. Well, I know, I know the Bible says that, but God and I have an understanding. It's not true. No, it all applies to us. All of it. Every bit of it. And so don't let those guys draw near to me without consecrating themselves. Even those priests have to consecrate themselves. And don't let them start peeking. You can't sneak up into this mountain or you're going to perish. He's concerned about them. And in fact, he uses this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uses this in Hebrews 12, 25. He uses this as an example for us. You can read that on your own. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. I don't know why you're telling me this, God. Moses is saying back to God. We've got an interesting relationship. You already told us to set up bounds, and we did that. So I don't know what, you know, what are you worried about. Apparently God is seeing more than Moses is seeing. They're getting awfully close. They're trying to encroach. And I'm warning you, you can't encroach. Then the Lord said to him, Away! exclamation point. So he's yelling at him now. Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Interesting way he worded that for the Trinity. He's speaking, the Lord said to him, away, get down, lest he break out against him. Who's he? There's a lot of he's going on here. So Jesus is probably speaking, and it's the Lord that he's talking about, the Father. And so we see that dynamic there in verse 24 and 25. Now chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, okay? 
This is what he's getting on top of the mountain. This is what they've come for. Here's what I want to set in front of you. Okay? God is not ad-libbing this. Okay? He's not improvising as he goes along. He knows that they're not able to keep the law. He knows they're not going to keep the law. That's why several times when we get into Leviticus that he gives the law and he says, and here's what you do when you break it. He understands all that. He's giving them the law so that later on Paul can write, the reason I gave you the law was to bring you as a tutor to Christ. I want you to know what I expect. I want you to know what the level is for you to gain entrance into heaven. Keep this perfectly your entire life, and that's why he's giving this to them. Write it on stone tablets because it never, ever changes. This is how it is. This is what you must have, must be to get into heaven. And so the question is, when you break any of these or you fall short of those Ten Commandments, now what? That's the tutor of it. That's the teaching ability of the Ten Commandments. Now what do I do? Now that I've broken the one or all of the Ten Commandments, it brings us to Christ, the Savior. So remember, that's why he's giving us this. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The word before doesn't mean in order. Like, I want to be number one, but you can have two, three, and four gods. I just want to be number one. That's not what it means. It means before as in your presence. Have no other gods in my presence. Nothing. He's going to go on to the next one, which is, you know, don't make any, don't make any gods yourself. We'll get into that in a minute. No other gods in my presence. What makes you get up in the morning? What causes you to get up in the morning? What drives you as a person? Why do, you, why do you breathe? Why do you live? Why do you do what you do? Is it for God? Is he your God? Or is it for money? Or is it for anything else? Is it for sports? Is it for what is it that gets you up in the morning and gets you going and makes you excited about being alive? That's your God. You may never want to admit it. You may have never made a shrine to it in your house, although maybe if you looked around closely, you might see it. But that's your God. Whatever causes you to get up in the morning and to live and breathe every day and be excited for the day, that's your God. And so there's a check for us. I don't want any gods before me. So what do you do about it? First thing that pops into my mind isn't the Lord. The first thing that drives me and wants me to succeed in life and move on in life and and be a blessing to everybody around me isn't God. It's money or it's favor or it's power or it's influence or it's whatever. What do I do about that? Well, you repent. You repent. You turn from it. You make God your God, the only God, and get rid of the other. That was the tough thing for the rich young ruler. He came up to Jesus and says, what must I do? He says, well, you need to do these things. And he names off the first four of the Ten Commandments to him. He says, I've done all that. You know, Jesus is like, have you really? Have you really have no other gods before me? Well, let me talk to you about the most important thing in your life. I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he couldn't do it. It was just proof and evidence that although you thought you had kept the four commandments, the first four, you hadn't. Money is your God. It's your God. That's fine. Then you won't mind getting rid of your money, right? He starts off as he's answering this rich young ruler with, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. 
And what he's saying to me, you're right to call me God because no one is good but God. So you are accurate when you said good teacher, God teacher. You're right. I am God. So if I'm God and I've just asked you and you said you've kept the first of the four commandments, you shall have no other gods before me and you've just acknowledged that I am God come in the flesh, then I want you to sell your stuff and give it to the poor and come follow me and you can't do it. That means that the money has taken precedence over the first commandment. That is your God. We have to be careful. We can deceive ourselves into thinking. I'm holy, I'm pure, I go to church, I own a Bible, I say the name of Jesus, which we're going to get into here in a minute. But what is your God? Now, he elaborates on that, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And that's where the period is. And I say that only because there's nothing wrong with carving a bird out of soapstone. You know, or having a carving of whatever. You know, that's fine. It's when you bow down and worship it that it becomes an issue. You know. So don't do that. Don't make these things. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me. You keep my commandments. Creating our own gods has been in our history. I mean, as far back as humans could carve they started making gods and worshiping in them. David talks about them in the Psalms, how you spend time carving out this wooden image that has eyes but can't see, has ears but can't hear, has a mouth but can't speak. And he says, and you, and you end up like them. You become them. See, the Ten Commandments are never because God's in, he's not egotistical. He doesn't have a, a self-image problem. He knows who he is. He was fine before he made us. He doesn't need us at all. It's for us that we have these commandments. See, when I start carving out this image, I become like that image. If I begin to make this God, that, and it starts off with a real simple thing, well, why would God do that? What I'm saying is, if I were God, I wouldn't do that. And that's where the image begins to be created in our lives. If I were God, I mean, we'd never say that out loud. We'd never, well, no, I'm not God. But, but we question him the same way we do as if we don't trust him. And so we've got better ideas about what I would do if I were God. If I were God, I'd do this. And I would, easy. You've, you've begun carving in your mind this God that looks an awful lot like you. When he warns us of that in the prophets, he says, you think I'm altogether like you. I'm not. And so as we carve out this God, we end up looking like this God. All of a sudden, we become blind, like our idol is blind. We don't hear the Lord anymore, like our idol can't hear the Lord anymore. And when we speak, we speak nothing but our own thoughts instead of the thoughts of God, like our idol. We become like our idol. Whereas, if we trust the Lord, we rise, we ascend, we go higher, we move up. It's better to be with the Lord. We're better people when we're with God. We become and are becoming. Remember, we're being transformed into the image of Christ when he is our God. But when we have this idol or we have this thing, we become like it. We actually decrease. We get smaller. We get less than what we could be. We degrade. You want to read a book about it? Job is a great book. This is where all of his buddies get around Job when he's suffering. Going through it, and all these guys, these, these friends of his, 
They begin to say, this is what God is, and this is what God is, and this is what God is. They begin to say all these things, and it's not till the last two or three chapters that you really get God's opinion on it when he steps in. He goes, you guys just all be quiet. You don't even know me. Where were you when I made this? Where were you when I did this? You're making this stuff up. This isn't based in anything, or it's not based in reality. It's not based off knowing me. It's your own thoughts and opinions about me. We have that problem. I think it, maybe it's culture. We have a constant analysis, you know, that goes on. Armchair quarterbacks, you know. I mean, that's what a sports show is. I've, sometimes you, you run across the sports shows. I can't stand sports shows. I don't know what it is about it. I just can't. Just always the second guessing of the coach or the second guessing of the calls and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, where were the Green Bay Packers without you? How could they have ever survived without you? How did the Chiefs ever get by without you being the head coach? How could you possibly know more? But there is, and there's these constant calls. I don't know why I called that. I don't know why I did that. This constant analysis. In the song. And they bring that to church. And they bring that to God when they're reading the Bible. And there's this constant analysis. And all of a sudden, I'm the head coach. You know, I saw... I was at, when Dan Felt was here, Dan Felt Funeral Home, I was there for one of their funerals, and we were looking, helping a, a widow pick out a coffin for her husband, and of course she didn't have any money, she was you know, dirt poor, and um, so I was, you know, staring, hey, don't go into debt, it's going in the ground, you're going to see it for an hour and a half, you know, I'm trying not to be callous and cold, but it's not worth going into debt over, you know, and they had these, you know, top of the line coffins that had, they were black with a big number three on the side of it. And maybe some of you know what that means. Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt. You can get a coffin that looks like Dale Earnhardt's race car. Or a chief's colors. It can be red with yellow flames. I'm, that's fitting, probably, where they ended up. I'm trying to be callous and cold. But I'm, like, I'm looking at these things and I'm saying, how fitting that the last thing we see about this person is what they're known for. This is an Earnhardt fan. And that was his God, or that was her God. Here's the Chiefs fan. That was his God. That was her God. And what would be on top of mine, or what would my coffin look like? You know? This God's describing, hey, I don't want you to make any gods in my image. I suppose the first person, well, let's put a Bible on top of it because he was a preacher. He's, he's a pastor, and so he loved, he loved the Bible. I don't love the Bible. I don't. I cherish the Bible, but I cherish the Bible because of who wrote it and what my God, the one I truly am in love with, says to me through it. I've got a bunch of love letters from Jenny in a box that she sent to me while I was in the Marine Corps. And I cherish those letters. They mean very much to me, but I don't put chapter and verse to them. I don't memorize them. I don't sit there and say, huh. I love them because it's her that I love. And they're from her, and it was her heart written to me. That's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is a love letter from our Father in heaven to us, and that's why I cherish it and love it and hold on to it and read it and study it. And Oh, man, I can't read Just like you would do a love letter from your wife or from your husband. Oh, let me read that again. Must have read them a hundred times, you know. So God isn't, you know, it's who he loved. I, I hope that's understood as I'm lying there in the casket. I don't know what we can do. It, he's with the one he loves now. You know, there's no theme to his death. Who's our God? Very important. He says, you shall not take the name 
of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. We misunderstand that a lot. We think it's just using God's name as a swear word. That's part of it, swearing and, you know, using. And, and it does make you cringe when you hear that. You're like, Ugh. It's so much bigger than that. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, you know, when you hear someone say that. First of all, they're an unbeliever, and they don't understand what they're doing. He's not their God. So he, he, they say whatever they think. They, it, it's unimportant. The name means nothing to them. For Christians, though, to take the name of the Lord is, is like a wife who takes the name of her husband. Understand that. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. You know, I put a video up. I'm not a big Facebook guy, and I think we're off now. I think I've deactivated, and I'll probably activate it again. I, know we, I go back and forth. I struggle with the discretion of it, and the, the, it can get silly sometimes. And, uh, but before I got off, I put this video up of this boy at Christmas time who, for his Christmas present, got his adoption uh, you know, certificate framed because for eight years he's wanted to take on his stepdad's name because his dad is other, his you know, birth dad is just obviously worthless. He wanted, to take, he wanted it so badly. So there he is in his Spider-Man jammies on Christmas, and he opens it up, and he reads it. And, and there's this kid, and he's looking at this, and they said, do you know what this is? Do you know what this is? And it's all, you know, video, t- a discretion again. This is probably a very private moment for this family, but now it's all over the world. And the kid just begins to weep and sob uncontrollably at the age of eight because he didn't, he didn't get a transformer. He didn't get an Xbox. He got a birth certificate that had his dad's name on it. And he just was weeping uncontrollably. And his dad puts his arms around him. It was the best Christmas present ever. That's what it means to take the name of the Lord. Do I weep uncontrollably because I can't believe I've been adopted into the family of God? That my father, Jesus' father, is now my father? Are you kidding me? Does it mean that much to me? Do I weep uncontrollably or do I complain that I didn't get an Xbox? or whatever the newest one is. Don't take the name in vain. In other words, when I take the name of the Lord, am I representing that name properly like I would want my kids to represent Dirks in the city? Don't take that name in vain. It's important. It reflects me. Now, as God watches me, his child walking around on earth, do I take the Lord's name in vain? Do I reflect God properly down here, or have I brought shame to him you know, in any way? So now it's no longer me pointing the finger at the co-worker over there taking the Lord's name in vain by using it as a cuss word. Boy, it means a whole lot more, doesn't it? You take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Take that day off. Have that day of rest. It may be Monday. It may be Tuesday. It depends on what shift you're in. But take that day off. Rest. Always keeping in mind, though, Mark chapter 2, 22, when he said, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, it was a gift from God to give them a break so they didn't work all the time. I want them to rest. It was a gift. 
I want them to take that day off. And then also, Jesus is our Sabbath, Hebrews tells us. He is our rest. He's our rest from our works to get to heaven. We rest now from our labors. We entrust in grace. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Keep them up there. Keep them in that position above you. Keep your parents there. It may be harder some days than others as a parent who doesn't do great all the time. I understand my kids have to obey this verse sometimes as opposed to willingly, you know. Now, the Bible says I've got to honor my father and mother because I'm not always right and I don't always do things right. But for your sakes and for our sakes, remember that. Honor your father and mother. Make sure you're honoring to them. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You should do any of that. So he runs through a list here. Let me go through those. Shall not murder. These are all against people. Paul wraps it up and says, or Jesus does actually, uh, it's Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. What are the greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, neither of which are in the Ten Commandments. Just a side note there. And all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments, he said. These would be the ones about loving people. Don't kill your fellow man. Don't murder them. Doesn't mean like a police officers or whatever. They, we've made that abundantly clear, I think, with our support of police and military. And even John the Baptist encouraged the centurions, just don't go beyond your duty. Well, what was their duty? These guys were crucifying people, criminals. They thought Jesus was a criminal. They were wrong, but they crucified. They in battle all the time. He says, no, I want you to do your duty. Just don't go beyond your duty. Don't extort. So you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Not to be having other women at all other than your wife. Not to be having other men other than your husband at all. You shall not steal. Don't take other people's stuff. Honor that. Respect that. It's theirs. It's not yours. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie against them. You have to bear true witness against them. Very important. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Don't, don't want what other people have. Be content with what God's given you. In fact, that was one of the qualifications last week with those who were going to be judges with Moses. Make sure they're content. They're not covetous people. Covetousness causes you to lie, causes you to steal, causes you to adulter, it causes you to murder, causes you to do all these things so that you can get other people's stuff. And this is the one in Romans 7, 7 that Paul says, this is what I was undone by. I know I haven't stolen anything. I know I haven't murdered anybody. These were all outward things that he could see that he knew. I knew these hands have not done any of those things, so therefore I'm righteous. When he came to the covetous, though, that was a matter of the heart. That I can't work on. Paul knew that. That's what drew him to Christ. That's the one commandment that he knew he could not get control of. That's something that only God could change. That was the tutor that brought him to his need for Jesus. So don't covet. Be content with what God's given you. Now, verse 18, we'll finish up here. Now all the people witnessed the thundering, so they saw it all. The lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. 
And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us. You speak with us, not him. And we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. They were terrified of what was happening. Good, in a way. He's going to clarify that. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. I love the way Moses words that. It sounds like an oxymoron. Don't fear. God only did this so that you'd be afraid. Wait a minute. Those two different kinds of fear. Don't be terrified of God like hiding under rocks, but have a very serious respect for him and understand that he is God and you are not. Do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. It's just dad, you know. Wait till dad gets home kind of thing. That was terrifying to the kids. Not because they were afraid of me, because you never knew what kind of mood dad was going to be in or whether he stopped off at the bar or not on the way home. No, they were terrified because dad brought justice when he got home. Mom said, I told you not to do that a thousand times. You did it anyway. When dad gets home, I'm telling you. There was a, it was going to be fair. You knew you'd done it. There was a love there, but you knew what was coming, you know. And that's what God says. I want you to see my magnificence. I want you to see my size. I want you to see my seriousness about sin so that you don't. So the people stood afar off. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10 says also Psalm 111, 10. That's the beginning of wisdom is to fear him. Fear him like that, like Moses said to fear him. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves an altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Be very serious about this. I don't even want the altar to distract you from me or from the sacrifice. I don't want any distractions when it comes. I don't want any man's hands that shouldn't be touching it. Pile up some dirt. That's as ornate as we're going to get here. And if you do make it out of rocks because there's no dirt, I don't want you chiseling it, making it look all pretty and scrolled and all that. No, just stack them. Because the important thing is the sacrifice. Because the important thing is the worship of me, not all the other stuff that gets in the way and can distract. I get distracted in here. I keep looking at the water spots in the ceiling. It's like, ooh. Then I read passages like this. I'm like, hey, you know, we're okay. No, I've got to fix the roof. We need to get it fixed so that we can put new tiles up there and it won't leak. That's a structural problem. And yet, I don't want to be distracted by stuff. I don't want to be worried about it. You know, carpet. No coffee. No, no kids. No wipe your feet, you know, kind of thing. Because of the carpet. Because of the carpet. No. We're here to worship God. Nothing distract us from that or distract us from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let nothing get in the way of that. When the building gets in the way of worship, the building needs to go. So, 
I don't want you to do any of that. Verse 26, we'll finish up. Nor shall you go up by the steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on. I don't even want you to make stairs on it because I don't want anybody to be distracted by your, by your robes coming up too high in your calves or whatever. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for um, this love letter to us. It's cherished by us. We study it. We know it because it describes you. Lord, we love you. That's what's important, God. Um, We want to be known for that. We want to be good representatives of yours. We want to take your name not in vain. We want to walk worthy of that name. So Lord, help us to walk worthy of that name. Help us to be kind to our wives, kind to our husbands, kind to those around us. A blessing, representing you properly, grace, mercy. That we bring peace where we go and not controversy and complaint. Lord, wherever you went, Jesus, wherever you went, kids weren't afraid of you. They loved you. They sat on your lap. You put them in the midst. You said we had to become like them if we wanted to understand certain things about you, God. We thank you for that. What a great example you were. You didn't even have a place to lay your head. And uh, help us to get our minds right on this. Help us to get our hearts right on this, Lord. Help us to, if there's any other gods... They may not be number one. You may be number one, but we've got some gods that are number two and three. Help us to get rid of those as well. That you might be number one and the only one. Bless these guys as they go today. Keep them safe on the roads. Help them get back safely. Honor this, Lord, we pray. As we've come to worship you and honor you, we pray that you protect us on the way home. And for those that are coming to the second service, God, I pray that you protect them. Help them to get here safely. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.